0: Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection.
1: Hi,
2: welcome to Treasures of the Texas Collection. I'm your host, Robert Darden. Of Baylor's many presidents, probably none was more colorful than Rufus C. Burleson. Burleson is credited with the oldest landmarks we see at Baylor today, including Old Main and Burleson Hall, the first two permanent buildings on the campus. And the fact that there is a female student population at Baylor is also due to Burleson and his wife, Georgia. He became the university's first president emeritus when he resigned the presidency in 1897, and his love for Baylor University never wavered. Pather Carius here to tell us a little more about this fascinating and admittedly sometimes complicated man. Welcome, Peter:
0: Thanks for having me, Bob. Rufus Columbus Burleson was a respected pastor, university president, and a not-so-private detective, <laughs> earning him the moniker Detective Bird among Baylor's student body. Burleson was born in 1823, not too far from Decatur, Alabama. Originally, he'd planned to be a lawyer, but later felt called to ministry. After graduating from Nashville University, he enrolled in Western Seminary in Covington, Kentucky. At his graduation ceremony, he made a public vow that he would devote himself to service in Texas.
2: Okay, serve in what way?
0: Well, even Burleson himself wasn't sure at the time, but in 1847, at the age of 24, the Home Mission Board assigned him to the Texas Territory. And as the story goes, upon his arrival at Galveston, he knelt on the shore and prayed fervently that Texas might be won for Christ.
2: Being the wild frontier that it was, I'm sure revivals on the Texas frontier were marked with memorable experiences.
0: Yes, they were. During an 1848 revival in Huntsville, a group of rabble-rousers thought they'd take a stab at repaying Burleson for having offended the whiskey men at a previous temperance meeting. <laughs> The church services were conducted in a wooden shanty that also served as a wagon shop. And just as Burleson was getting into his sermon, the troublemakers started hurling bricks at the (laughs) feeble building. He said it seemed as if the walls were going to fall and the roof was going to cave in. But needless to say, it created quite a scare. But after calming the women in the audience, Burleson just continued preaching. Of course. Of that sermon, Burleson recalls, and I quote, General Sam Houston turned and said, General Davis, as boys, we fought and bled under the banner of General Jackson. Let us go and enlist under a nobler banner. And these great and venerable men, one a state and the other a U.S. Senator, came up and knelt down for prayer at the mourner's bench. End quote. The revival continued for nearly a month longer, with 127 souls coming to Christ. Goodness. Most of these were distinguished people of the community, but the count also included a few saloon owners. (laughs) Returning to preach the dedication service some 50 years later at the Huntsville Church, Burleson fondly reflected, That night and that meeting will ever stand as a monument of power of the cross and of showing men they are great sinners and need a great Savior.
2: You know, knowing those two colorful characters, I'll bet there are a million stories about this man.
0: You bet. And here's another one. While preaching in Brenham, a group of men heard Burleson say he'd never sworn or smoked in his life. So they decided to attend a service to try to smoke the Baptist preacher (laughs) out of his pulpit. I never could tolerate the fumes of tobacco and was about the easiest victim of an assault of this kind they could have selected, Burleson wrote. Now some lit up as soon as they entered the church while others smoked their cigars into the church's open windows.
2: That's a funny image.
0: Soon the house was full of smoke, and I began to grow a little faint, but I understood what they were up to and determined to speak on if it killed me, Burleson stated. I never saw so many people (laughs) smoking at once. It looked to me as if every man in the house had two cigars in his mouth instead of one. (laughs) Since they'd turned up the heat on him... Burleson thought he'd do the same in return and began preaching about hellfire and brimstone, (laughs) noting the New Testament account of the rich man's cry for just one drop of water in the midst of his torment. Burleson says, They smoked me and I smoked them. (laughs) My fire and brimstone was eternal and outlasted theirs. Very soon their cigars went out. The house became clear of smoke. I recovered from my spell of faintness and preached on. Preach on. Many in this crowd, whom I outsmoked, were converted during the meeting, joined the church, and spent lives of Christian usefulness. Great story.
2: He definitely had a powerful ministry, and I guess he was renowned for it throughout the South.
0: He was, but he believed in keeping it simple, Bob. This is what Burleson had to say about his ministry. I am ashamed to say that I have been advised and urged to prepare a few big religious orations to remind the people that I know something of Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and philosophy. They say this would add to my reputation as the president of a great university. At Palo Pinto, a young lawyer, having heard me preach, said, I never was so disappointed in my life. (laughs) I had heard of him from my childhood as a great educator and president of the oldest and greatest college in Texas, and I thought he would give us a great literary feast, telling us about Greece and Rome and philosophy and carry us to the Castilian fountains. But he just stood up and preached about Christ and him crucified, and actually told his experience and cried like any plain old Baptist or Methodist preacher. Burleson said, I regarded that as the highest compliment I have received in a ministry of half a hundred years. But alas, thousands of preachers are carried away by the sinful, foolish demand of the age, and hundreds of dry-eyed preachers stand up, and with all the pomp and declamation, preached to dry-eyed hearers great religious orations.
2: Well, I hate to confess, but that's pretty relevant even today.
0: It is. By 1848, (laughs) Burleson became pastor of the First Baptist Church in Houston. His pastorate was brief, but he was devoted to his flock. At the start of Houston's yellow fever epidemic in 1848, Burleson was away doing missionary work. The church suggested he not return until the epidemic had passed, fearing he would fall sick as well. But Burleson insisted on returning and tending to his people, which is just what he did until he contracted yellow fever himself. Oh, why? But undaunted, he was just as loyal the next year when cholera hit the city.
2: Wow. So I guess it's safe to say, once he made up his mind to do something, Rufus C. Burleson stuck with it.
0: Exactly. He was fond of his stubbornness, actually. <laughs> And couldn't decide if it was a flaw or an asset to his character. In his diary he wrote, If I am right, I can face the opposition of the whole world. And a personal motto of his was, Never ride offense, be neutral in nothing, independent in all things. It was his obstinacy that kept him in the midst of controversy. I'll bet. In 1849, he refused to perform the marriage ceremony of a San Jacinto captain because the man had divorced his previous wife for reasons other than, adul- other than adultery. Many thought his decision would result in bloodshed, but Burleson held his ground. Mm-hmm. But it was the same stubborn determination that spurred him to bring the struggling and very young Baylor University to a higher level when he assumed the presidency in 1851 in the midst of a thriving pastorate at the Houston Church. One of his first action steps as president involved commissioning six students to spread the word throughout Texas that Baylor was alive and well. Riding horseback, the students carried this message to every known Baptist household in the state, and that fall, the school's enrollment surpassed all previous records.
2: Well, I bet they had some stories to tell, too. I wish somebody had kept that.
0: (laughs) Right. One of the most immediate problems Burleson had to address was the lack of accommodations for students classrooms, as well as dormitories. In not so many words, many students expressed that unless conditions changed, they would not return to Baylor the following year and would instead select another university to attend. Quite soon, improved facilities were built, and Burleson even mortgaged the land he'd inherited from his father to secure funds to build additional housing.
2: That's serious.
0: Not only did these ventures retain current students, but they also attracted many more yielding students from almost every settled county in Texas, and from Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and one from Boston. Goodness. And it doesn't end there. With the help of his wife, Georgia Jenkins Burleson, he spearheaded co-education at the university level. He once raved that his university conferred more degrees toward females than any other on this side of the Mississippi River.
2: Now that's quite a claim. You know, I understand... This was a joint effort on the Burleson's part. Don't they have one of those, you know, meat cute kind of first encounters you see in movies a lot?
0: Yep. The Burleson's first met in 1849, the very year Waco was founded. It was at a Sons of Temperance rally in Washington on the Brazos. Georgia was 16 and Burleson was 26. Ooh. At the time, he was serving as pastor of Houston's Baptist Church, and he'd been selected to receive a silk banner on behalf of the Sons of Temperance. It was young Georgia who presented it to him, and his tall, dark looks caught her eye. He never forgot her, either. In June of that year, he wrote in his diary, My mind on one subject is fixed. My manner of life I have resolved to change. If my health and God's providence permit, I need the sympathy of a pious and lovely woman at all times.
2: romantic devil. (laughs)
0: By 1852, Georgia had completed the four-year track at Judson Female Institute in Marion, Alabama. She returned to Texas afterward and married Burleson in 1853. Now, at that point, she was 20 and he was 30. Henry L. Graves, Baylor's first president, officiated the ceremony on the Baylor campus, which was an independence at the time. Burleson valued his new bride's intelligence And he soon began to consider her opinions in his deliberations on recruitment and other matters as they pertained to leading the university. While on a recruitment trip, Burleson once wrote home, Oh, how I wish I was by your side to hear your wise counsel, always of so much value to me. I feel incompetent to decide any great question without your advice.
2: A Wise man. So Georgia really came to play a large role in Burleson's administrative decisions in the end.
0: Right. But this did not always sit so well with the other staff. In fact, it led to quite a disagreement between Burleson and the principal of Baylor's female department, Horace Clark. Georgia planned a co-ed mixer for the students, but Clark wouldn't allow the female students to participate. In a spirit so rare, Patricia Ward Wallace writes, by the time the feud led Burleson to leave Baylor for Waco in 1861... He and Georgia believed in co-education and instituted the practice first at Waco University and then at Baylor University.
2: Now, if I remember right, that also marks the founding of what is now the University of Mary Hardin-Baylor, which eventually moved to Belton.
0: Right again, Bob. The Burlesons threw themselves into his new job with their usual energy and passion. By 1887, an additional female dormitory in Waco was built, Burleson Hall, in which Georgia served as a matron. Throughout the university, the coeducation experience extended into the classroom and in worship services. Burleson had strong opinions about coeducation, stating in 1886 in a letter to his beloved students and brethren, "In 10 years from today, a man opposed to coeducation will be classed with believers in witchcraft and with those who once firmly believed that the earth is flat and that the sun revolved daily around the earth." Yeah. The monkish opposition to co-education rested at first on three giant falsehoods. Number one, woman needs no education. Two, woman is not smart enough to be educated with her rougher brother. (laughs) And three, the association of males and females is injurious, or that the noblest specimen of womanhood is an old maid or nun, and the noblest specimen of manhood is an old bachelor or priest.
2: Good grief. Unfortunately, I guess those views were pretty widespread in those days.
0: They certainly show the inferior view of a woman's status in that era. He goes on to say I resolved to adopt coeducation, though London University in England and Oberlin in Ohio were the only coeducation universities in the world. Waco University was the third. But now, behold the wonderful change there are 170 coeducation colleges many of them the greatest in the world, such as Oxford, Edinburgh, Copenhagen. Now, Burleson allowed Georgia to set the rules for the females, and these were much more strict than those for the male students. Baylor's catalog prohibited females from being on the streets unless accompanied by a teacher or matron, not to open accounts at any store, nor to make any purchases without the approval of the matron or teacher in charge. Not to borrow from, not to lend to each other money, jewelry, or clothing. That
2: was quite a handicap. You know, I take it the words visitation hours were out of the question for Georgia's girls.
0: Only male relatives were allowed to visit. And beyond that, a dress code was added, and the girls had to be in service on Sundays, where Georgia was faithful to serve as a chaperone. Ooh, tough. Tough.
2: And on top of all that, just getting into Baylor in those days was no easy feat.
0: Well, for one thing, just to enroll at Baylor, you had to present testimonials of good moral character to the president. If these were accepted, you were allowed to take the admission examinations. Of course, boys had to be at least 15 and girls 14 years old before they could be considered admission candidates.
2: 15 and 14? Oh, my.
0: To pass, the guys had to show proficiency in orthography, reading, composition, English, Latin, Greek, higher arithmetic, elementary algebra, and ancient and modern geography. (laughs) Girls were not tested on their knowledge of foreign languages or geography, but did have to pass an American history exam.
2: I don't even know what orthography is. And what if you were not proficient in those subjects?
0: Well, then you had to enter the preparatory department the lower division of the university system. About half of those who came to Baylor enrolled in this department. Another division of the university was the Lone Star School of Oratory, where about one-fourth of the student body enrolled. Students interested in a business career usually enrolled in the commercial college.
2: I wonder how many 15-year-old boys today are proficient in Latin and Greek. (laughs) Okay, let's back up for a minute. I'm dying to hear the detective bird stuff.
0: Well, while George attended to the girls, Burleson was known for keeping up with whatever the boys were scheming, which seemed to be their primary pastime in those days. (laughs) Tricks and pranks and hoaxes, you name it, the Baylor men were behind it. Once they thought they'd come across a great opportunity to pull a prank one evening when Burleson mentioned he would be driving to the countryside the next morning. In the middle of the night, the boys drove off in his buggy, not knowing Burleson had hidden himself inside. (laughs) A good piece down the road, he startled the boys when he made his presence known and said, Young gentlemen, I am very much obliged to you for the nice ride. Now will you pull me back home?
2: Ha! Tables returned that time.
0: There's another great story about Burleson and the Baylor boys. Only this time it involves General Sam Houston's baptism in 1854. Houston had joined the Independence Church, and Burleson was to baptize him the following day in Independence Creek, also known as the River Jordan, because it separated the boys and girls' campuses in Independence. This time, the boys got one over on Burleson. When Burleson, Houston, and the congregation reached the creek, they found it filled with wood and mud. Very well, said Burleson. We will outsmart these mischievous boys and baptize the general in Little Rocky which was a second creek in the area. Another time in 1857, Burleson picked up on plans for a nocturnal turkey roast on the riverbank between the two dormitories. Seemingly out of nowhere, Burleson appeared and piped, thank you for the opportunity to partake of my favorite fowl.
2: My goodness, Peter, the man was everywhere.
0: Still, he was very fond of his boys. Burleson had a special admiration for those going into the ministry. To their surprise, He would stop by on any given day and visit them, just out of the blue. The Reverend Joseph Martin Dawson recalls one such encounter with Burleson. He writes, One afternoon in January 1900, I looked out the window of my room in a cottage on South 5th Street in Waco and saw a tall, bent man in a frock coat and a high-top beaver hat coming up the walk. I recognized him at once as the venerable Dr. Rufus C. Burleson, President Emeritus of Baylor University. Imagine my surprise when presently he knocked at my door and on being received asked, Do you happen to be young brother Joe Dawson? Modestly I confessed my identity and reverently invited him to a chair whereupon he explained, It is my habit to call on all the Baylor preacher boys. Fact is, I love students. Forty nine years now, ever since eighteen fifty one, When I became president of Baylor at Independence, on through the years in Waco, I've made it my business to know every student enrolling and to keep in touch with each after leaving school. For an hour, the frail, aged schoolman conversed with the 19-year-old licentiate preacher, all the while showing that the long years had brought wisdom instead of senility. On the walls of the little chapel in the main building, I had read the mottos inscribed there by him, among them pro ecclesia, pro texana.
2: You know, thinking back, it's amazing that he'd still take the time to visit with the student ministers after serving as president. Uh, Just still boggles my mind someone that old would be that sharp who could travel that far. I'm sure they never forgot it.
0: Just a little more than 12 months after visiting with Dawson, who would have a very distinguished career himself, Burleson passed away on May 14th, 1901. In Waco City Auditorium, A host of family, friends, teachers, ministers, and society's leaders remembered the life of service and dedication Burleson poured into Texas, just as he'd vowed so many years before. A total of 17 formal remarks were given during the ceremony. The Honorable Waller S. Baker, a Baylor alum, spoke on behalf of the students. He said, oh, how he loved Baylor University. It was his handiwork. It was his dream by day and by night. Near into half a century, his tall, slender, bended form watched over it as tenderly as the mother over her babe. And in his last moments, when all hope of life had gone, among his parting words were, "Lift me up so that I can see Baylor."
2: Oh, that's lovely. Just incredible. Rufus Burleson left a positive mark on secondary education as we know it, just not, not just in Texas, not just in Baptist circles, but across the United States.
0: Exactly, and his interest extended beyond Baylor. Dawson served on the board of trustees for Bishop College in Marshall, Texas, and claims hardly a meeting went by without verbal acknowledgement of the institution's indebtedness to Burleson for his obtaining a $25,000 pledge from Dr. Nathan Bishop of New York City to establish the college. Dawson notes, and I quote, Burleson assured his Northern Baptist brother that since heaven will know neither colored nor white as such, we should be concerned here for our brother Negroes' education. Also, the Burleson's push for co-education opened the door for Waco's females to learn alongside males, to learn professions. Now this, in turn, opened new doors of opportunity in the realm of employment. This spurred Waco's females earning professional degrees, attaining professional positions, and earning respectable salaries. In short, this was empowering and had quite an impact on the city of Waco. Perhaps that's a topic for another time. Oh,
2: indeed. Pather, thank you.
0: Thank you for having me, Bob.
2: may know that tune, that's Cy Oliver's Opus 1. And, according to our guest, Dr. Jean Boyd, it was created for the Tommy Dorsey Band back in the 1940s. Dr. Jean is here to help us understand the significance of this recording and a whole lot more, and to guide us beyond the beginnings of Western Swing. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
2: Why did you select this particular recording to open this show on Western Swing?
1: Well, simply because I want everybody listening to understand that Western Swing has a variety of different sounds and different approaches. And and not all of Western Swing bands sounded the same. For example, uh, the particular arrangement you just heard was done by Leon McAuliffe and his fabulous fiddle player, uh, a man by the name of Bobby Bruce. And they did this uh, arrangement together and, and you could easily tell that they were familiar with Tommy Dorsey's original. And this is this is jazz. This is not country music. This is jazz played by a band that was really very good. It was said of this band that they practiced more than they performed. <laughs> but they had to practice because they were playing the the more difficult chord progressions. They were doing uh their own arrangements of, of well known Uh, swing arrangements so they certainly didn't want to mess it up.
2: So how do we begin to understand this really actually pretty complex topic?
1: I'm really glad that you recognize the the complexity of this topic. Um, It's fairly typical of programs well I've been on a couple of these programs and it's fairly typical that we get to started talking about Bob Wills and that's sort of where it where it ends. Um, This program is intended to take us beyond that. Um, History puts it this way. Um, Bob Wills was the best known of the Western Swing bands, the one that that garnered national uh, recognition. However, the first band to actually record was Milton Brown and his musical Brownies uh, out of Fort Worth um milton brown and bob wills were both members of the light Doughboys, boys which was handled by w leo daniel who was sales manager for burst mill <coughs> and elevator company um but milton brown left that band because he couldn't do what he wanted to do and he put together a band which represents everything that we understand about western swing it had the rhythm section it had the front line or the melody section um, he played arrangements of popular songs, of jazz tunes, uh fiddle tunes, country. He played everything. But the deal is, he was the first to record. His were the first recordings to represent this new style mm-hmm. called Western Swing, which was actually wasn't called Western Swing. It was just dance music, sure. Um, and Bob Wills left. About nine months or 11 months, actually, after Milton Brown did, he left the Doughboys, came down to Waco, put together the Playboys, and he started to record. Mm -hmm. Now, what we don't know, what we don't know is what was going on with all those other bands, all the string bands that were becoming swing bands, Mm -hmm. who either didn't record at all or didn't record until after Milton Brown recorded. So what I'm saying is you can't just say Western Swing started with Milton Brown or Western Swing started with Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys because it could have started with some band that never made it on a record.
2: Sure. That's probably true with a lot of genres. Uh,
1: yes. We'll
2: hear more about Texas Swing with Gene Boyd next time on Treasures of the Texas Collection. I'm Robert Darden. Our thanks to you for listening and to Pathra Carey. You can learn more about Rufus C. Burleson as well as Texas Swing and just about anything else related to Texas at the Texas Collection on the Baylor University campus. Check out that website at baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Ward Law Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Ferguson Clark Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, Public Radio for Central Texas.